Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Well, though the dust has settled on the NBA season, we'll take a look at the impact the NBA Finals had on the legacies of some players and teams and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 30 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, episode 30, if you can believe it. 30 episodes of The Bridge. It did take a lot longer to reach 30 than it probably should have, but that's okay. We continue to push on, the show continues to improve, and we continue to educate listeners one episode at a time. Now, before I get into what I wanted to chat about this week, if you tuned in last week, I mentioned that my coverage of the NBA Finals was going to be a two-parter of sorts just because there was so much to get into. I didn't want to have a two-hour episode. So last week dealt with a lot of the X's and O's that went into the game and the series between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors. We talked with Coach Nick over at bballbreakdown.com, and he did a great job of educating us on some of the things he witnessed while watching the games. But now it's time to dig a little bit deeper and look at a bigger picture of how those NBA finals affected some of the legacies of certain players or teams. Yes, the theme of this show will be... Legacy. I know how much the media and others love throwing around that word and discussing that in regards to players and their accomplishments and where they stand on the Mount Rushmore of their respective sports. Oh, if only we had enough time. But there's a couple of housekeeping items, as they say, that I wanted to bring up quickly before I dive into the show. The first of which that I forgot to mention last week. If you haven't already, I highly suggest watching the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called OJ Made in America. And it's a little bit lengthy as far as documentaries go. It's actually more of a series. It's a five-part series. It runs about seven hours and 45 minutes. Ezra Edelman was the director of this, and he did an absolutely phenomenal job of telling an unbiased tale of everything there was and is to know. The way he was able to paint the picture is unbelievable. He left no stone unturned. It's the best telling of the story you can get without actually interviewing the main character of O.J. Simpson himself. But it's an absolutely fantastic documentary, a fantastic series 
the way he's able to tell the story, the cinematography, the interviews, the different documents and things he was able to find, things that you would never even think about. I don't know how he found some of these home videos and different receipts from restaurants and these diary entries and these letters. There's so much involved. I can't even imagine being able to put together a project like he did, and he should definitely be proud, humbled. And as I said, it's one of the best series I've ever had the opportunity to watch. I've always been waiting for one of these types of documentaries to happen to learn more about the O.J. Simpson case because you could read up on it, but it's not really the same as having somebody put all the information into one place for you to sit back and watch it. I didn't watch that FX series about O.J. Simpson. I just didn't want to learn about the O.J. Simpson trial and his life story by watching characters who played the guy from Jerry Maguire, the guy from Grease, and the guy from Friends. I'm good. This documentary had all the real-life characters, and it was incredibly done. You can check it out on demand or on ESPN. I highly recommend it if you have the time. Once you start watching it, you won't be able to stop. So if you have a vacation day at work, perhaps take the eight hours, pop that on, and just enjoy greatness. The second item I wanted to get to is a little bit more somber of a topic. Hall of Fame coach Pat Summit died at the age of 64 on Tuesday, five years after she was diagnosed with early onset dementia in 2011. She ended up retiring from coaching basketball in 2012 and really started to go away from the public eye as the years wore on until she unfortunately passed away on Tuesday. Far be it for me to be able to speak about what Coach Summit meant to the sport of women's basketball, the University of Tennessee, and all of those around her. The best I can do is throw out some of her accomplishments just to let you know what she really meant to the sport of women's basketball and pretty much to everyone she came in contact with. First of all, she was a pretty damn good basketball player, which not many people might realize or may have forgotten about. She played at the University of Tennessee Martin. She graduated as the school's all-time leading scorer with 1,045 points. And then at the ripe age of 22, she accepted a graduate teaching and assistant coaching position at the University of Tennessee when she graduated in 1974. Not too shabby of a start for somebody that might want to get into coaching. And then all of a sudden, the head coach decides to resign and she gets promoted at the age of 22 when she's not much older than most of her now players. And at the time, the NCAA didn't really formally recognize women's basketball. She sometimes even had to drive the team van to the road games herself because no one really gave them much recognition. How that has since changed. In 38 years at Tennessee, she won eight national titles 1,098 games, which is still the most ever by any Division I basketball coach, male or female. Coach K at Duke is the next closest. He's at 1,043, so there is a chance that he may surpass her if he decides to continue coaching for the next several years. Summit's teams made 31 consecutive appearances in the NCAA tournament. 
Tennessee had just 208 losses under her tenure, which puts her record more than 800 games over 500, which is absolutely bananas. I don't care if you're coaching at the high school level, at your local YMCA, if you're coaching a pickup game down at the local courts, that is pretty damn impressive no matter how you look at it. She was named NCAA Coach of the Year seven times. She led the Lady Vols to 22 Final Fours. The list goes on and on for the team accomplishments. She really just made a southern state of Tennessee, which was obsessed with NFL and college football, appreciate women's college basketball because of what she was able to do there. She was fiercely competitive on the court, on the sidelines. She had one of the coldest stares I think you'll ever see, even though I was not one of her players, obviously, and didn't have to see it from the court looking onto the sidelines. When they would put the camera on her on television and she was staring down either a player or a referee, as a fan, you could just feel the life slowly being sucked out of you because of how intense the stare was and how just disappointed she looked in you. You wanted to become a better person just watching it on your couch based on the look that she was giving. But she believed in her players both on and off the court more than almost any coach ever could. A number one fan to all of her players, the coaches that have now gone on as part of her coaching tree, if you will, and coaching at different levels. She was as dedicated to her job and to her team as you could ever hope for. One of the stories that speaks to that is when she was pregnant with her son, her water ended up breaking while she was heading to a recruiting trip to go to this girl's house and see if she would like to play for the University of Tennessee. So instead of calling that trip off, she just got some paper towels and tried to dry her pants and ended up still going to this girl's house and sitting down with her in the middle of contractions trying to get out her pitch as to why this girl should play for the University of Tennessee, but then the contractions got so bad that they had to actually drive her to the airport so she could hop on a plane and get to the hospital to deliver her child. Coach Summit made you want to turn on the TV when the University of Tennessee was playing to watch her, to watch her team, to watch what they were up to, and she'll surely be missed in that sport for many years to come. And the last thing I wanted to touch on very quickly, you know I don't do much talking about soccer because I don't know much about soccer. But soccer has been on television and social media and the internet for the past couple of weeks because of Euro 2016 and that Copa, Copa Cabana, whatever it's called, tournament that was held in the United States as well. But that's not what I wanted to draw attention to. In the Euro 2016 round of 16 game between England and Iceland, Apparently, England was supposed to roll over this Iceland team, and Iceland ended up upsetting England 2-1. to one. Now, the announcer calling this game for Iceland got incredibly emotional upon Iceland winning this game. And I wanted to play a brief clip of that because in my life, I hope to be as excited about something as this gentleman was about Iceland beating England in the round of 16 game 
because I've never quite heard anything like it. You're not going to understand what he says. I will read the transcript afterward, but I wanted to give you a sense of this gentleman's excitement. I don't even want to say his name because I'm going to mispronounce it, and that's not going to do him justice. Just take a listen at this call and ask yourself if you've ever felt this way about anything. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. You want to tell me about Vin Scully's iconic calls, or Joe Buck, or Al Michaels, or the Mike Breen bang in the NBA? All that is well and good, but no one has ever been more excited than that gentleman was after that soccer game. Now, obviously, he didn't understand any of what he said, but the transcript is such. This is done. This is done. We are never going home. Did you see that? Did you see that? Amazing. I can't believe it. This is a dream. Never wake me from this amazing dream. As you probably guessed, all of those sentences ended in exclamation points, except for the did you see that, which also included a question mark to go along with the exclamation point. He closes with, live the way you want, England. Iceland is going to play France on Sunday. France, Iceland. You can go home. You can go out of Europe. You can go wherever the hell you want. England won. Iceland 2 is the closing score here in Nice. And the fairy tale continues. You've got to love the passion. You've got to love the Brexit dig. Just an unbelievable broadcasting moment. And I had to share it with you because unbelievable broadcasting moments is what the bridge is all about. Now on to what you actually came here to listen for, and that is some discussion on the NBA Finals. As I mentioned, this week I wanted to touch on some of the bigger picture things that came from LeBron James winning his third NBA Finals, the Golden State Warriors losing the NBA Finals after winning 73 games in the regular season and setting the record, what this means to the legacy of LeBron James, what this means to Golden State's legacy of a 73-win team not being able to get it done. And when it comes to legacies, there is one gentleman in particular that I knew loved to chat about them. That is Josh Eberly. He's an NBA writer for several different outlets. I started following him on Twitter, and he's a pretty great follow when it comes to the NBA. You can follow him at Josh Eberly. 
That's Josh Common Spelling, E-B-E-R-L-E-Y. His feed is chock full of NBA and a little Game of Thrones thrown in here and there, but now will mostly be NBA. He's got 42,000 plus Twitter followers, so clearly he has some knowledge about the NBA. He contributes to HoopMag.com, Today'sFastBreak.com, HoopsHabit for Fansided.com, and he also contributes for BballBreakdown.com. So you can find his work in several places. I will attach some of his most recent pieces into my show notes so you can catch up on some things he's been discussing at the end of the show he mentioned some of the projects he'll be working on so we'll have that to look forward to and you know i appreciate his opinions and his comments because he does live in canada and i don't have that long distance so i'll be paying out of pocket for this conversation so i hope you all enjoy it as much as i did without further ado let's get into the conversation so I'm here with Josh Eberly. He tweets about the NBA and writes about it as well on the side. Good, sir. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. I know you are a contributor for an array of different websites, hoopmag.com, todaysfastbreak.com, hoopshabit for fansided.com, and for bbellbreakdown.com. I wanted to start with having you tell the listeners a little bit about how you developed a passion for wanting to write about the NBA and how you ended up to where you are now. You know, I always joke that uh, in Canada, most kids, after the stork drops them off, they got skates on their feet. That was never (laughs) the case for me. I was always a basketball guy. So through the years, I've kind of gone from being that one weird dude who likes basketball. So like, hey, that guy kind of knows something about basketball, right? And uh, it just progressed from there. So is it safe to say you might be a little bit of a Steve Nash fan? Oh, absolutely, man. Steve Nash, is uh, he's a well-liked man up here. <laughs> I would say so. As a Lakers fan, he might not be liked as much by myself just because of the fallout that ended up happening from his contract and back issues, but that's for another day. You know what's hilarious, though, is that yesterday there was that, the Cauldron posted that article about there not being a white American superstar in forever. Right. So I, I was like, you know, who's been the best white basketball, American basketball player in like the last 20-something years? And everybody was saying Nash. And I was like, oh, no, don't, oh, no, you don't. We no. got Nash. You got to leave us our one guy, right? I mean, yeah, I noticed that, too. There was a lot of Dirk Nowitzki, Steve Nash. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think people were understanding that it's Jason Kidd, White Chocolate. I mean, you have to get those two named before you even have a conversation about it. J.J. Redick, how about that? Absolutely. Who doesn't love J.J. Redick? So if I'm doing my math right, we're both in our mid-20s. I just wanted to reassure the listeners that you know what you're talking about when it comes to the NBA. What have been some of your favorite teams, favorite players, some of your favorite moments when you've been following this sport for the past couple of decades and really getting involved with it? Wow, okay. Um, So let's start. My mother is a flight attendant. She flew all over the world all her life. When I was really, really little, she brought me home some Dallas Mavericks, Dallas Cowboys gear. Uh, been a Dallas fan ever since. Um, all, Dirk, Dirk's my favorite player ever for that reason and many others. But uh, some of my favorite moments. Hmm. The first NBA Finals I truly, truly paid attention to was 2001. Um, just all the hype with Iverson and Kobe and Shaq and just all the names and how polarizing it is. That was the that was the first finals where I think I went from like I like basketball to like basketball as an obsession. Right. Uh, 
the 06 series between the Spurs and the Mavericks was special. You know, Tony Parker did all he could, but the Mavs, of course, run on to the finals. You know, shady business happens there in the heat walkway of the championship, but the 06 semifinals was great. Um, this past finals was amazing. I mean, it, I have watched the majority of the great games for the last, I don't know, 15, 16 years, but I'm a historian freak. I'm on basketball reference every day. I've got an office job. There's plenty of time to Google watch film. I'm about as big with basketball buff as I think you can get. That's why you're on the show. And I'm, I'm sure that 2011 Mavericks beating LeBron probably is pretty high up there on your list of best moments for you. Absolutely. That series for me, and I'm going to sound so spoiled saying this, Dirk had that amazing series against Oklahoma in the third round. Spanking the Lakers in the second round was, of course, very special. I mean, the three-peat chance. The second or the third round, Dirk has a back-to-back 40-point games against the Thunder. I just wanted Dirk to have one game like that in the finals. It didn't happen. The Mavericks won with team basketball, but yes, it's definitely up there. That 2011 run really was special. I mean, as a Dallas fan, there were years that I was really excited. Uh, 2007, 2008, 2011 wasn't really one of them. You know, Portland was a team that was going to give them, on paper, a hard time in the first round, and then the Lakers were supposed to spank them. And, you know, each round you got a little more hopeful, but they had no business beating that heat team. I mean, that was a special, special run. Right. It was definitely great. It pretty much solidified Dirk's greatness. He now has that ring and we could all sleep soundly, at least with him being able to have that. So last week I spoke with Coach Nick of B-Ball Breakdown about the X's and O's of the NBA Finals between the Cavs and the Warriors. This week I wanted to dig a little bit deeper and start throwing that word legacy around into the conversation But until I get there, until we make it to the word legacy, my first question to you is, do you think J.R. Smith has put his shirt back on yet? I hope not. (laughs) I really hope hope not. I mean, J.R. Smith is an entertainer at his core, and I'm happy he won, and I'm just happy that he continues to make headlines because that's what that guy's all about. He deserves it. I think he's going to go on a celebratory party tour pretty much into the first week of practice. And when he comes back out of shape and disheveled and dehydrated, I won't have any ill feelings towards it. I think he deserves it as well. When this series was 3-1 with the Warriors leading, going back home to play game five, did you ever think that the Cavaliers would have a chance to come back and take this NBA Finals? I don't want to, you know, take too much credit. I picked the Cavaliers to win this finals, actually, before. When it was 3-1, I was obviously not optimistic, but I was kind of thinking the same thing that uh, Richard Jefferson said the Cavs were thinking, which was, if we win game five, we're going to game seven. And and I think that's kind of what I was thinking as well. You know, you don't got Draymond Green in game five. You win this game on the road. You come back, you take care of business at home at six, and seven's anybody's ball game. You know, I mean, it was still a long shot. I wasn't touting them. You know, on Twitter, oh, they're going to do it, they're going to do it, they're going to be the first team ever to come back 3-1 in the finals. But there was an inkling of, of something deep in my core. I think I'll give myself that much of a that. I think that's worthy. I made the comparison last week that this comeback is on equal footing with what the Boston Red Sox were able to do in Major League Baseball in 2004 when they came back against the Yankees from a 3-0 deficit. Is there anything that you compare this comeback to? being against one of the greatest regular season teams in the NBA? Uh, it's hard. The, the only one that I re- really have liked, I'm not really, I'm not well-versed in baseball, but the one that I've liked a little bit is the 07 Patriots. Just because you know, it, it's hard with football being a one-game sample size in the playoffs. You can't right. really 
weigh that same the weight of every game right coming back but you know they were the historic team with the historic regular season and you know the Giants came in and they took care of business obviously Eli Manning is LeBron James but but there's something to be said there I think would probably be my closest comparison well we'll get to what this means for the Warriors in a second but as you mentioned you've been watching the NBA now for a couple decades and we've seen superstars come and go we were young enough to watch Jordan toward the end of his dynasty with the Bulls and see him come back with the Wizards we've seen Kobe we've seen Shaq we've seen Dirk how impressive of a performance was this from LeBron James in these finals with what he was able to do and basically carry that team to the NBA championship now I've seen every game Jordan has played in the finals except for his first two championships I think I've only seen a couple games this is the best that I've seen ever but Granted, I didn't get to see that Jordan ones live. We didn't have Twitter. I mean, it was different. Right. Shaq, LeBron, Jordan. I mean, those would be my three top finals performers ever. I think what Shaq did early on with the Lakers, he just had some monster stat lines, like 38 points, 13 rebounds, stuff like that. Just nuts. But other than other than really early Lakers, Shaq, we haven't had anything of this magnitude. And then when you consider that LeBron, over the last three especially, I mean – I don't know if it, it strengthens it or weakens it, but when the when the Cavs' butts were on the fire, LeBron just turned into a Super Saiyan, some sort of beast mode we've never really seen before from him or really anyone. I mean, but his numbers over those last three games were just astounding. Now, it was funny. There's been some discussion that perhaps Kyrie Irving should have been named MVP for what he was able to do, especially after having to miss last year's finals. Do you give any truth to that at all, that he should have got the MVP award of the finals over LeBron James? John, the lengths that people will go to to demean the name of LeBron James is insane <laughs> to me. It's insane. And that's, I, I don't want to take anything away from Kyrie Irving. He was fantastic. And, I, you know, I'm sure if he broke down the finals with Coach Nick last week, he did talk about some of the X's and O's. But Ky what Kyrie did coming off the dribble and taking some of that scoring load off LeBron and creating his own offense, it was, it was phenomenal. It was wonderful. It was what they needed from a second option. But, I mean, LeBron averaged 36 points, 12 rebounds, and 10 assists over the last three games of the series. He had, I think, three blocks and three steals in the last three games. He had a force at both ends. Anyone who's saying that just doesn't like LeBron James – or maybe they like LeBron James, but they love Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. They're trying to protect somebody else's legacy because that's just that's just so backwards to me. It's almost like they're saying, okay, if you took Kyrie Irving off of this team, they would not have won the finals. Well, if you look at it the other direction and take LeBron James off that team in this year's instance and even in last year's instance, keeping it with Cleveland – you're telling me that they would have fared better than they did this year. The discussion just makes no sense to me in that regard. It makes me want to bang my head against the wall endlessly. I, I mean, like you said, I love the analogy. If you take LeBron off this team, they probably don't get out of the second round. If you take Kyrie off this team, they don't win the finals. I mean, Kyrie was terrific, and I hate that. I'm not trying to bash Kyrie Irving. He had a great, great series. He, was, he played really well in the playoffs after a pretty stagnant regular season coming back from injury. But there's just a reason that LeBron James is in the Mount Rushmore comparisons and Kyrie's up-and-coming great player. I mean, there's a clear division here. Before we look big picture, I wanted to touch on the Warriors a bit. They blew out the Cavs in the first two games. They stole one in Cleveland. But 
as you mentioned, that game five scenario where they don't have Draymond Green, Bogut ends up getting hurt in that game and misses the remainder of the finals. The luck seemed to run out for this team. What did you see from them specifically in the last three games that was much different from the Warriors team that we saw all season? You know, there's so much that happened in the last three games, especially obviously game four, Draymond gets tied up with LeBron. Uh, the Warriors were ahead of themselves. I think this whole series, maybe even this whole postseason, Curry went down. They smashed the uh, the Rockets. They didn't have any problems with the Trailblazers. Curry came back. It's phenomenal games against Portland. Some great games against Oklahoma. And they're coming. They just they always had this incredible air of confidence, which I don't think is a bad thing. Which I, I, a lot of people cr- criticize the Warriors for. But I mean, they were coming off a championship. They won the most games in regular season history. If a team can't be confident about themselves. If that team can't be confident about themselves, who can? Right. So then we get to the finals, and I think it was after game two, play says, you know, they're better than the Showtime Lakers. They're still playing in the finals. And it was a joke. I'm not trying to take this out of context. But they were getting a little ahead of themselves. And then, you know, Draymond Green gets the suspension. And, oh, you know, if I was playing, I'm sure we would have won, but we'll take care of business in the next one. And it just, they seem to lose themselves in the idea of being the greatest team ever before they got there. And I think there's, there were some legit concerns that maybe Steph Curry wasn't quite healthy. He was burned out, whatever. Maybe, maybe not. But at the end of the day, this team kind of defeated themselves in the sense that they, they thought they'd cross the finish line before they had. So that 73-win record-breaking regular season followed up a 67-win regular season from last year and, of course, that NBA championship. Do you think not winning the finals this year takes anything away from what they were able to do in that regular season and puts an asterisk near the 73 wins like a lot of people are discussing about? Not at all for me. I actually wrote something about this on Hoopmate. I think the Warriors should hold their heads high. I don't think there's any reason to be down on Golden State whatsoever. Um, There's this perception with social media, especially like we bash LeBron unfairly, we bash Kobe unfairly, so now we have to bash Curry unfairly. And it's, it's kind of redundant. I mean, how many Twitter whippings does somebody need before we say okay well they still won the most games in history and their core is still under 28 years old and they have a ton of money in free agency you might sign another superstar and you know they did win x amount of games over the last two years forgive my terrible math on the spot but it's just it's silly right i mean why, why are we punishing these guys they did some amazing things they didn't win the finals absolutely criticized them on losing the finals they didn't win a 3-1 series but or take care of a 3-1 series, but they also came back from a 3-1 series. There's just a lot of positives that people don't like to acknowledge in the moment. And when we look back and we look at the point differential and we look at all these teams the Warriors beat, we look at how they still progress to the finals in their journey with Curry being hurt and missing time, I think there's a lot of positives here. And like I said, their window's not closed. Like I like the idea of a window for a title team or for, for a potential dynasty, and this window is still so very wide open. Yes, we're very quick to judge in the moment and not let things simmer and let things run their course, which is exactly what the public has been doing with LeBron James' career, for example, putting him on Mount Rushmore, not saying he's worthy of it, and the man's still going to play basketball for probably 10 more years. When it comes to the Warriors, what do you think they might need to do in this offseason to really give them a solid chance of continuing this success and potentially getting back to the NBA Finals again for a third straight year next season? See, the honest truth, which nobody really wants to admit, is they don't have to do any. I mean, they really don't. They could. Uh, Harrison Burns is a restricted free agent. He played terribly in the Finals. 
but he's young. They could just match any offer that he gets, sit on the team that they have, and there's a good chance he'd be back next year. I mean, this team won 73 and 67 games back-to-back, went to the finals twice. There, there's no real reason to believe that they're going to regress all of a sudden or that the Cavaliers joint their brains so hard that they can't possibly fathom you know, going through the playoffs. And there's no real reason to believe that. I mean, in a perfect situation, they land Kevin Durant. Uh, bad, bad things would happen for the NBA if they landed Kevin Durant. I mean, I can't even imagine Harrison Barnes shot 17%, I think, over the last three games of the finals. You put in Kevin Durant in there. He creates offense from the offensive stall. He gets those open shots in the corner. Oh, my goodness. I mean, they would just be disgusting. But they don't even have to go that far. I think they could upgrade in a lot of ways. I mean, they could grab a Bismack, Biombo and let Festus go, and they get better defensively. They could grab uh, Nicholas Batum or Chandler Parsons over Harrison Barnes, and they get better at both ends. They're just as long. They either get more playmaking or higher efficiency scoring. I mean, there's a lot of ways that this Warriors team could improve, and the honest truth is they don't even have to do it to be a contender. Unlike a lot of teams, if they stay put, they're a contender. If they grab somebody else, they just add to the pile. I feel the same way. It's almost like as long as they can put that quote-unquote death lineup onto the court and if anything just find somebody else to fill Harrison Barnes shoes and bring back Andre Iguodala because of the importance he's had to the team they should be fine if they keep that core three I don't think they necessarily need to go overboard now we've been talking about LeBron a little bit four regular season MVPs three MVPs in the NBA finals now his performances in game sevens continue to impress in elimination games off the charts in the NBA finals we know what he did he led all the teams in statistical categories if the Cavs had lost however that would have put him down at two and five all time in the finals but now he's three and four and here we go all that said what do you think LeBron James legacy is now even if tomorrow he just decided you know what I'm gonna hang my hat and put this game behind me and move on to the next adventure in my life okay and anyone worth their salt has him in the top 10 I mean, even if you absolutely detest him, even if playing for one franchise and him leaving hurts him, even if the finals record hurts him in your estimation, he's still top 10. I mean, if you if you know absolutely anything about basketball, putting him less than top 10 is, is unacceptable. That being said, I think the people who, who are okay to step back and look at this and say, look, he's 31 years old, he's won three titles, he's won four MVPs, he came out of high school with more pressure than any player in any sport ever. I mean, from the moment... You know, he was in his second or third year of high school. This guy had all the pressure on him in the world. His biggest knock throughout his career is, hey, you're not Michael Jordan. I mean, what could he have done differently if you're looking at his career? What more could he have accomplished? Right. He's been the underdog in every NBA Finals he's ever played in, except for twice, but seven times. I mean, he still has three rings. He's just turned out, you know, spectacular year after spectacular year. Uh, Michael Jordan played till he's 39 years old. Reminder, LeBron is 31. I mean, there's still so much room for him to do so many more things. For myself personally, I think he's top five. You know, you you can slice it every way you want. And I know some people want to value rings over everything, which is silly. But then I guess you got to make a spot for Bill Russell. But, But top five feels safe to me. Well, you don't have to say that. I know you had him in your top three in your top 15 list that you posted last week, which I thought we might be able to discuss. It actually took me a little while to find it because you're very active on Twitter. And I was like, I know he has this somewhere. Let me find it. So you had Jordan, Kareem, LeBron as top three, Bird, Magic, Wilt, Tim Duncan, Shaq, Jerry West, Hakeem, The Dream, Olajuwon, 
than Kobe, Bill Russell, Moses Malone, Dr. J, and the Big O. I don't think you can go wrong with any of those names. How did you come up with this list, and has it changed? No, I you know the fifteen that I have right now um, is probably what I would still roll with. But that being said, things are debatable, and it's harder with eras. Last offseason, actually, we did I did a project for HoopsCritic.com with uh, Brian Gilsiler, Justin Termini, a few of the NBA XM guys on X, X, on XM Radio, and we did a, I think a panel of fourteen guys, and we did a top fifty. And uh, over this year, I've been thinking about the list, and, and my opinion has changed from this year. Uh, from the year that's gone by. And I mean, I think the guys that I felt I didn't place high enough was Jerry West, who I think I had 16 or 17, and now I had him, I think, what, 11, 10? But nine. Nine, okay. So, yeah, I felt like I should move Jerry West up, so I did. And the guy I felt I had too high, I think I had Jason Kidd, like, 27 or 28. I would, I move, I would move him back now in my top 50. But things are, like you said, you can always move things around. I would say top five for LeBron because – you know, it allows people to wiggle that are one or two guys in there. But, yeah, I have them third. The guy I actually got crap for when I posted that list was Larry Bird. You know, I think I, I value Larry Bird a lot higher than most most people do on Twitter anyway. It gets to the point, especially with those 15 guys, and even if you want to go lower into a top 10, you could really argue until you're blue in the face, and there's really no wrong answer to it. And as I've been trying to tell people and others have been trying to tell people, it's a little bit too early regarding LeBron James to really set him in stone anywhere because his chapters have yet to be written as far as how he'll finish out his career. Do you think it's safe to say that we'll probably be seeing him back in the NBA Finals next year since he's projected to stay with the Cavs and remain in the East? Yeah, I mean, crazier things have happened. You know, there's always the possibility of an injury like they had last year. You know, maybe Durant pulls a 360 and decides he's going somewhere in the east and they're give they give him a run but at this very moment i would be pretty i would be really surprised if cleveland wasn't in the finals last year and i said that each of the last two years and until lebron james gets to a point where you're like it's kind of slowing down maybe this is so-and-so else's team and we get that narrative until you see we get to that point there's really no reason to doubt this team well there hasn't been for the past six or seven years so i don't think we should start now Really quick, I wanted to hit on the NBA free agency because I know that's going to be the topic of conversation for the next several weeks with some of the bigger names that are going to be wined and dined left and right by the NBA. I would enjoy going out with these teams, eating at those expensive restaurants, and not necessarily making up my mind whether I'm going to go with them or stay with my current team. Do you see any blockbuster deals, any blockbuster moves being made regarding any of the top NBA superstars in the next coming weeks? You know, I, I don't really see a huge, like not superstar names. I mean, there's big names who are going to move. I think Hassan Whiteside's going to move on. I think Al Horford's going to move on. Chandler Parsons. There, there's guys, but I, not Kevin Durant is considering. I mean, there was a time where I thought there's no way Kevin Durant was leaving when the Thunder up 3-1. I was like, why would he ever leave this team? But I don't know that he loves this. I don't know that he loves all the media attention. He's never really been that guy. Right. And for him to take meetings with five other teams, to me, says he's definitely not sure of his future. Because if, if you really, really wanted to leave, you would probably only take a meeting with one or two other teams that you had finalists of. 
if you were sure you were going to stay, you wouldn't take meetings with anyone like the Margaros is doing with Toronto. He's definitely considering his options. I just think financially, why why would he leave when he makes the extra thirty something, forty million, if he stays one more year in Oklahoma and then re-ups then? I don't see a big blockbuster trade. Carmelo Anthony was way more likely to move before they made that Derrick Rose move. Now it's kind of what can we do under this one-year circumstance and how much potential does this team have to play right now? I think the only name you might see move in the next little bit, the only superstar name who's really in jeopardy, might be Blake Griffin. And, you know, I've heard reports that the injury was more devastating than people thought. There's some worry that Blake Griffin might not be the same guy. The Clippers haven't found that success over the past four or five years they've had together. Blake Griffin's the one name that if you were you were kind of low-key wondering if a superstar could move, I think it's him. I think Kevin Durant is definitely going to enjoy the lobster tails. I think he's probably going to stay one more season because then he'll reach that 10-year plateau in the NBA, and that's when you really can max out your dollars. Plus, Russell Westbrook will be up for his contract, so he could decide whether or not he wants to stay with him. I think this is a good way for him to kind of let teams know, like, hey, if I'm going to come with you next season, maybe you guys should consider moving these pieces around and getting your ducks in a row because when I become a free agent, if you don't have this list ready for me, like an artist wants when they go play a concert, they have all their list of demands. I think that's where his mindset is now, and he'll probably go back with the Thunder for at least one more year, and we'll get to enjoy that. Still get great basketball in the West. Before I let you get out of here, I wanted to allow you to give us a preview on some of the projects you might be working on, some of the things we might be looking for heading down the road for the myriad of different websites that you're writing for. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, I have some ideas. The offseason is always fun because all the little projects you think about during the year that your editor is like, no, write something that's going on right now. Don't give me any hypothetical what-if legacy stuff, which I love. And all those all get turned down during the year, but right now you kind of get to play with them. So, I mean, I'm doing some what's next pieces for, for HoopMig and just, you know, where teams go from here, what's their future look like. But I'm also I'm developing an idea here. Last year I got a panel of 14, like I said, to do the top 50 players ever. I think this year I'm going to get a panel of 20-ish guys who are going to do the top 15 playoff performances ever from first round to the finals. And, I mean, I think it would be fun to get people's opinions and run it out on Twitter. And, I mean, it always sparks a lot of conversation. Not sure who I'm selling it to yet, though. That's perfectly fine. Well, we can all follow you on Twitter if we would like, Josh Eberly. I wanted to know as well how you managed to deal with some of the people you end up dealing with on <laughs> social media, especially on Twitter, just because if you put a list out like that top 15 or have a strong take on anything that goes on, you're going to get trolled. So how are you able to balance that? and not take things too seriously when you have people jumping down your throat for something that you might have said. You know, it's hilarious. I, uh, my second year of college, I interned for Sportsnet. And uh, I actually was doing work with like, the Flames, the Calgary Flames up here. But uh, the guy who was mentoring me, he's done radio and broadcasting for 30 years, and he said he won't get Twitter because he can't deal with the criticism. And I don't blame <laughs> him. I mean, when I... When I started, it was a lot. Uh, the first place that I really got work published was Dime Magazine. And I remember I was doing a piece. I don't even remember what it was about. But I've never been the biggest Kobe Bryant supporter. I think Kobe's a tad overrated due to his large fan base. So I put a piece out, you know, probably mirroring that sentiment somehow. And I got, like, death threats. People were going to fly up to Canada to kill me. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. When Derek Rose won MVP in 2011, I was 
shocked and disappointed, and I said that, and I feel for Chicago. We're going to come kill me. And I mean, you just can't you can't take it seriously. You just got to laugh. And, and it, it happens. It happens all the time. There's there's been comments on comments on comments, and it's unfortunately there's a lot of negative, terrible people. But you just you laugh and you move on. You laugh, you find the good ones, it makes you appreciate what you're doing, and you definitely do a great work. And then once in a while, you peek the blinds open a little bit and just make sure nobody's waiting outside to do what they said they were going to do based on your opinions on Kobe Bryant. Well, sir, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Your insight was great, as I knew it would be. I'll throw out a couple different things in my notes to let people know where they can find your work. And as I mentioned, we'll be looking forward to some of the things you got going on to keep us occupied this offseason. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, John. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes over on my website at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or by searching for John Lund under Artist. Please subscribe to The Bridge and leave a nifty review so that the show continues to gain popularity among sports fans everywhere. You can also listen to The Bridge over on SoundCloud or on the Stitcher app. Next week on The Bridge, it's really a toss-up. As to what we'll be talking about, perhaps we will dive into some more NBA. NBA free agency is here. Perhaps some players will be switching teams or just enjoying the free dinners given to them by NBA franchises at their favorite restaurants. We may also dive into baseball and take a look at some of the races around the league or whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.